Hello, and thank you for joining us on Bible Truth Feed. We're continuing our series on the life of Christ by Brother John Martin. This is class four, and it's taken from John 16, and the first 24 verses. He titled this address as Sorrow Turned Into Joy. Just a reminder that all these classes are also going to be available or made available on video format where we hope to show the the verses that Brother John turns up on screen. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. And as always, if you've got any comments or questions or you want to leave us a message, please do so and we'll do our best to read them. Thank you and enjoy. Sorrow turned into joy. In John chapter 16 and from verses 1 through to verse 24. Good evening, my dear brethren and sisters. Well, John chapter 16 opens up with these words of the Lord that he said, Look, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. That, that word offended, of course, more specifically means in the Greek text to be stumbled, to stumble. I'm telling you all this, he said, unless the time come when you stumble. Because you see, things are going to be quite dramatic for them a bit later. And the Lord did not want them, brothers and sisters, to be overcome by the events that were soon to, tr to transpire in his life and in theirs. But you know, the simplest warnings of our Lord, matter of fact, everything he said, I suppose if, if we could only know it ourselves and search it out, is all in the Old Testament Scripture. Even the simplest of warnings. If you come back to Isaiah chapter 8, look what it says here about being offended. A really important chapter in the Old Testament scripture speaks about his work among the people in Galilee of the nations. And this warning about being offended. He says in chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, Look, sanctify Yahweh of armies himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel, for a gin or a trap and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now you think about that. He says, look, you've got to sanctify Yahweh of armies in your heart. You know, you've got to, you've got to believe, brothers and sisters, that God has an army and that army will be dispersed on our account through prayer. He says, look, you sanctify him and he'll be for you for a sanctuary, a little sanctuary. Now a sanctuary is something, of course, where we have a defence in the midst of problems. There's a little sanctuary and the problems are massive because he said, but for the others, for both the houses of Israel, not just for some of them, but both of them, he said, he shall be a rock of offence and he shall be a stone of stumbling. And he goes on to say, and many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Now, many of them are going to be offended, aren't they? Very seriously offended. Offended to the point where they're going to reject him and finish up, brothers and sisters, losing their life. Now look at the next verse. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. 
And the Lord, reading that context, would know what was going to happen. That there was going to be a confederacy that's going to get together to, to, to take him to the cross. The Romans and the Jews are going to confederate together. But he warned them of what's coming. He said, now when that happens, I don't want you to be stumbled over it. You sanctify Yahweh of armies in your heart, and he will keep you in a little sanctuary. But all around you, you're going to see people stumbling over me. You're going to see it happen everywhere. And they're going to be trapped in that attitude. But he says, in the testimony he says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. And that was almost like a command from God to him. Because you see, those words, brothers and sisters, to bind up and to seal means to narrow it down. And the Lord would read that and he'd think to himself, that's what I've got to do. I've got to get this little group, narrow them down and say, now look, beware. And it comes from that chapter. And that's the chapter which speaks in, in the, uh, the next chapter rather, which in the context of his work among Galilee of the nations. And they all came from Galilee. They all came from the despised district of Galilee. And yet both the houses of Israel would fall into that trap. So you see, these warnings were not just something that, that came off the top of his head. They were all here. And he was narrowing that, that law down to his disciples and, and getting that little group together and saying, now you beware of what's going to happen. And to tell them what, what would happen to him and what could happen to them if they didn't understand and prepare themselves for that. Then he goes on and he says, and they shall put you out of the synagogue. They'll put you out of the synagogue. And brothers and sisters, they're going to do that in the name of God. Now you turn to Isaiah 66 while we're here. Now here it is. And he's going to warn them that in the name of God, people are going to put them out of the synagogue. They're going to disfellowship them. And Isaiah 66 and verse 5 says this. Hear the word of Yahweh, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Oh, let Yahweh be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Now you think about that. How, what a simple verse that is. He said, Now that there are people who are trembling at my word. He mentions them in verses 1 and 2. Uh, these are the ones to whom Yahweh looks, brothers and sisters. And they tremble at God's word. They fear him and they don't want to offend him. They want to do the right thing, and when they do the wrong thing, they're afraid of him, and yet they love him because they know he'll forgive them. Now, that crowd, he's talking to, and he said, Now, look, I want to tell you something. You that tremble at my word, your brethren that hate you, for my name's sake, are going to say, Let Yahweh be glorified. And they're going to cast you out in that attitude of mind. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue and say, Oh, let Yahweh be glorified. Did they ever do that? They did that, brothers and sisters. You look at John chapter 9. They did exactly that. And they're going to do it again. Remember the blind man that was healed? And they didn't want him to go around telling everybody that the Lord Jesus Christ healed him. They didn't want that to be known at all. And so what did they say to him? In John chapter 9 and verse 24, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Glorify God. Let Yahweh be glorified. And then in verse 34, they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and do you teach us? And they cast him out. That's exactly what Isaiah 66 said. They shall say, Let Yahweh be glorified and throw you out. That's exactly what they did to that man. 
And they did it in the name of God and believed that they were righteous in doing it, brothers and sisters. Jesus is warning his disciples. You know, it's one thing. You see, there's a tremendous warning here. I don't know whether we all appreciate this. But you know, brothers and sisters, it's a tremendous warning that it's one thing, you know, to be taken as a Christadelphian and to be abused by the world and to be thrown out or denied or judged by the world. We can take that. We've got no problem with that because that's them and that's us. But when they do it, when people in the truth do it to you, in the name of religion, that's a different matter. That is an entirely different matter. And that is very, very difficult to face that issue. These were, not, these were not Gentiles that Jesus is talking about. These were Jewish people. These were, these were the disciples' own people. They grew up with them. Went, went to the synagogue from childhood with them. And they're going to be put out of that society in the name of their religion. Now Jesus said you beware of that because that's going to hurt. And it did hurt, brothers and sisters. That would have hurt greatly. Look what they did the Apostle Paul. And look at his defence in, in the Acts of the Apostles. It was a common defence all the way through. The way which they call heresy, so worshipped by the God of my fathers. These twelve tribes instantly serving God hope to come. For which hope sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of Jews. The word the in Acts 26 is not there. I'm accused of Jews, of all the people in the earth that I should be accused of, my own people, and I believe their truth. Now that's not easy to take. So Jesus is warning him about that. And this poor blind man, you imagine him, brothers and sisters, you found sight. All right, it was a wonderful thing to see. But you imagine the difficulties that even that presented to him and the man would be bewildered and bemused by all that went on and now he's out in the street in the name of God. And Isaiah 66 said, they'll do that to you and they did. And Jesus went on to say, when they put you out of the synagogue, that, and he said, they'll kill you. They'll want to kill you. And whosoever killeth you will think that he does God's service. Now, there's more in that than meets the eye. You know that word doeth is the Greek word which is used as a technical term for sacrifice. Matter of fact, the word is rendered offer many times in the New Testament. Witness, Hebrews 5 verse 1, Hebrews 3 and 5, 1, 3 and 7. Just in that chapter alone, that word for doeth is used to offer. He says, when people kill you, they will consider that as a sacrifice to Almighty God. Now, are you seeing the, what he's telling them about, brothers and sisters? You, you think about it. You, you would, none of us would ever want to be in the situation to be impaled upon the criticisms of others and held up as, as this, that and everything else in the name of a brother in Christ, in God's name. Now, that's incredibly difficult. And they needed this warning. You remember when Phinehas, he put a stake or a, a, a spear through the, the sinners in that tent with the Cosby, the woman of, of, of Moab, and Zimri, the prince of Simeon. Remember when he stuck the two of them together? You know, there was a rabbinical comment about that. Numbers 25 and verse 13 is the reference. And the, the, the rabbi said this, Whosoever sheddeth the blood of the wicked is, that he, is as he that offereth a sacrifice. Now they weren't too wrong about Phineas, of course. 
But they applied that across the board. And here Jesus said, you're going to be in that situation. And James, the brother of John, they killed, they Herod killed him with the sword. And the Jews would have saw that as a sacrifice to God. Now you imagine the hurt that would come about all that. Jesus said, I don't want you to be stumble over that. I don't want you to stumble over that. Let me tell you, he said, let me tell you the real cause, not what they're thinking. Let me tell you what the real cause did. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. That's a great comfort, brothers and sisters, isn't it? That's the real reason. Ignorance. So don't you get upset. Don't you ever doubt your position. Don't you ever think that you're in the wrong track when people do this in the name of your God, the God of Israel, out of your synagogue, in the name of your religion, and say you're an offering to your own God because you're so wicked that even killing you is an offering to him. Don't you ever waver, because I'm telling you, the real reason is ignorance of my father and myself. That's the reason, brothers and sisters, and they had a stick to that, and that would not have been easy. I don't think any of us could appreciate the feelings of these men who were brought up from childhood in this way. Yet now they were seen as being totally out of, out of kilter with all Jewish thought, habits, practice, religion, everything. And they had to wear that. And Jesus said, it will happen. And he told them that the time would come when they would do that, he said. He said to them in verse 4, but these things have I told you that when the time shall come. Now in the Greek, that's more explicit. explicit. It really is, when their hour will come. So they've got an hour. God has given them that. And you'll find that the most reliable translations change that, that rendition. Rotherham does, the RSB does. It puts that when their hour is come. Now what does he mean by that, brothers and sisters? Well, it's like he said in Luke 22, later on when they led him to the cross, he said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And in John chapter 17 and verse 1, he said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son. So what's happening here is this. He said, there's a time coming. There's a time, there's a period is coming. It belongs to them. But, even in their hour, the Son of Man is going to be glorified by what they do. And you see, by telling him that, brothers and sisters, what he was trying to say to them was this. Don't, only be, don't not just be offended because of these criticisms and being cast out of the synagogue and treated as absolute heretics. Don't worry about that because he said, I'll tell you something, it's all under God's control. It's their hour. And who gave them that? He did. Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was God's counsel that he was delivered. He had it completely under control. So he said, don't you worry, it's all under control. But you beware, he said, don't you be offended. And he told them at the end of verse 4, he said, look, I didn't tell you this at the beginning because I was with you. See, when he was there, brothers and sisters, all these sort of things that came upon them, he, he would step out in front of, the, front of them and he'd take the brunt of all that. 
he'd be there to do it. For example, you've got a classic example of that in, in the 18th chapter of John when they swept into the garden uh, with their lanterns and torches and their swords to take him from the garden of Gethsemane. He said, who do you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, he stepped forward and said, I'm he, let these go. That, that was a classic example of what he meant. I was there then. So he could step up in front and say, who are you looking for? Looking for Jesus. That's me. You let this crowd go. And off they went, scattering for their life. See, that's why I didn't tell you at the beginning. Because I was there. But he's not going to be there, brothers and sisters. That's the issue. Now, comes the question now, having that first four verses of warning on that issue about not being offended, the question is, why does he need to go? I mean, it's a, it's a logical question, isn't it? In their minds, God could change him on the spot and make him the Messiah right there and then. What's all this business about going? And, and why is the necessity for this? Why, why do we have to put up with this? What, what's the need for it? That would be the natural question. Now in verse 5 he said this, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you ask me, Whither goest thou? You know, brothers and sisters, they did ask that question in exactly those words. Peter did. You come back to chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Now we're going to see several times this evening what appears to be absolutely direct contradictions. Now Jesus said, none of you said, whither goest thou? But Peter had said that. Well, what did he mean? What was the point? You see, brothers and sisters, here's the issue. And this is what he's going to explain to them. When Peter said, whither goest thou, Lord? What was uppermost in Peter's mind was that he was going. But now the Lord said, none of you have put the emphasis as to where I'm going. Ah, that's the difference. So Peter was worried about him going. Where was he going? But the Lord said, you should have been thinking, Peter, not simply of where, that I am going, but where I'm going. And you'd have had a different attitude of mind. Now that's the issue. That's, it's not a contradiction. It's the emphasis upon going and where. Peter was thinking about him going, but the Lord was thinking about where he was going. Now he said this, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. But you see, brothers and sisters, they were sorry that he was going, but if they had been thinking about where he was going, that attitude would have been entirely different. Now, you remember what he said to them when he went, finally left them in Matthew 28, we read in verse 19, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's where he's going. He's going to sit at the right hand of power. Jesus is. So they might see all this weakness in him at the moment. Human nature for all that it stood for. And the, and the non-resistance to evil. Arrested in the garden, dragged off, smitten on the cheek done all sorts of things, nailed to a cross. They might have saw that then, but he's going to a position, brother, sister, where all power in heaven and in earth is going to be given to him. Now, if they'd have thought about what, what that was where he was going, then there would have been a different attitude. There wouldn't have been sorrow. Now, you took at Ephesians. You just look at Ephesians. Now, Jesus is going to fill this out in a minute. He's going to explain exactly what, what, what all this means. Now, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, this, this is the apostles' exposition, as it were, of, of where he went. And he speaks in, say, take it up in chapter Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us would who believe 
according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also that which is to come, and hath put all things under him under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Oh, what powerful words, brothers and sisters. And you know, you, you take that, that at face value. Sometimes those words overwhelm you. you. You tend to think they're so sublime and you can't understand it. But they're not really they're sublime, but you can understand them. He's just simply saying there that this man, that God has taken this man to his own right hand and put him there in the mighty power. All dominion powers of flesh are absolutely subordinate to him and are like a puff of wind, brothers and sisters. And why is he there? He's made him head over the ecclesia, which is his own body. Now, if you've got all the power in the world, whatever else you may not prevent, you will not prevent anything happening to you. You're the one that you're going to look after, aren't you? We all do that. We also carefully look after ourselves. We wash clean our teeth, we wash our clothes, we do up our homes, we're ever looking after what is necessary. There's nothing wrong with that, brothers and sisters, but they are the necessary things in life to preserve health and strength. Well, he's there, head of the ecclesia, which is his body, and he's got all this power at his disposal. What do you think he's going to do with that? That's Paul's exposition of it. It begs the question, of course, you come back to John chapter 16 with me, it begs the question, why, why couldn't all this be done when he was here before? Why, why do we, why do he, God hasn't lost any power. Why, why couldn't it be done through this man before? Well, he goes on to explain about that, you see. And, you know, we need to understand this, brethren and sisters. We really do. He said, look, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now, see how important this is. I want you to understand this. It is expedient for you that I go away. Rotherham says, it is profitable for you. See, see if they'd have thought about where he was going, then that would have been a different attitude. Sorrow would not have been there. Now he said, look, it's, it's profitable for you. Now he makes this point. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. What would stop the father sending the comforter before he went? That's the issue, isn't it? If you were there and thinking to yourself, well, I can't see the point of all this. God is God. He's almighty. He's the creator. He's power uncreated. what's, What's the obstruction? But Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. If I don't go, which is for your profit, then you won't get that comfort that I've been talking about. That, that's how necessary it is for me to go. And if you'd have thought about that, you would not have been sorrowful like you are now. If you'd have thought where I was going. Now, back in John chapter 7, he made the same point, brothers and sisters, way back in John chapter 7, early in the history of the Lord, he made the same point. Well, the scriptures make the same point here. In John chapter 7 and verse 38, it says... He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, 
because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, there's nothing to stop the Father doing whatever he wants to do, brothers and sisters. But the Father never does anything that is incompatible with his righteousness. Never. And it's pleased the Father that although he has blessed men before with wonderful blessings, he has preserved this wonderful blessing as they got it, we haven't got it, but they got it certainly, the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead them into all truth and to take that gospel message into all the world like it had never been done before, that was preserved, brothers and sisters, until the work of the Son had been completed when he would convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment until those principles had been established. There's no channel that will come back through. In other words, he's telling his disciples... The Father, I am the Son of the Father. He's going to channel everything through me. And if I don't get to that right-handed power, then there's nothing going to come to you. I'm the channel through which all those blessings will flow. The great and powerful purpose, when the gospel we preach, not only the gospel of the kingdom, which was preached in Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, and you never read that the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, do you? You never read that until you come to the Acts. And now added to the kingdom of God is the name of Jesus Christ. Now until everything had been done concerning that name, brothers and sisters, that gospel could never have been taken to the world. And the power of the Spirit to do that, to come upon them, to lead them into all truth, to instill and inspire the truth in them and to give them the strength to do that would never have come if that name had not been fulfilled. And that name included his life of perfect obedience, his death as a crucifixion of the flesh with all its affections and its lusts, and his resurrection as the physical seal of the moral perfection that he had worked out in his life. And when the Father had done that and established that in that man, he now sits at the right hand of power. All power in heaven and earth is in his hand, and everything goes back through him. There's nothing to impede that. God is now dealing with men like he'd never dealt with them all before. The times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now it's different. And so you see the monumental work here, brothers and sisters, the monumental work that was going to be achieved in him going to the Father's right hand. Now the point that Jesus is making, and he wouldn't have expected them to understood at that point, but the point he was saying to them, if you'd have known that, you'd have never been so sorrowful as you are now. If you'd asked not the fact that I'm going, but where I'm going. That's the issue. And of course, where is to say why, because he's going to the Father's right hand. Now he starts to explain to them the principles uh, that, that he will have to fulfil. Verse 7 again of chapter 16. Now this I tell you the truth, it's, it's to your advantage, he says, for me to go, that I go away. For I don't go away, you won't receive the comforter. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And here's the things that's got to be done. Three of them of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now that work was completed in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, brothers and sisters, that that is the sections of Peter's speech. Of sin because they believe not on me. And he says, you've taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. The first point he made was to convince them of their sinfulness. 
The next point he made was this same Jesus hath God raised from the dead and exalted him to his own right hand. The righteousness of the Father. And then lastly he said, save yourself from this underward generation. Judgment to come. Now they were the divisions of Peter's speech. Done by the power of the Spirit sent through to the apostles through the Lord Jesus Christ as their mediator and the channel of divine blessing. That had never happened if those principles hadn't been fulfilled to make it possible to say it. If Jesus had failed the purpose of the Father, they could never have said what they did because the world would not be convinced of sin because he would have been a sinner. They'd all thought he was like unto them. They would never have seen the righteousness of the Father because he would have been, had been unrighteous if he'd not obeyed God. And he could never have brought judgment to this world if he didn't have the moral right to do it. So that had to be done in him. And he said, if you only knew that, you wouldn't be sorrowful about me, about me talking about going away. Now, I've sinned because they believe not on me. Well, it's obvious, isn't it, that when Peter stood up and said, look, by wicked hands you've crucified and slain, and he pointed out to them that, that in, in the psalm, in Psalm 16, it said, thou will not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He said, David couldn't have been speaking about himself because he's over there, half a mile away from Olivet. Go and have a look, he said, his tomb's there. So he couldn't have been speaking about himself. There was a holy one of God who would not see corruption. And brothers and sisters, there was another tomb about another half a mile away which was empty and they all knew it. It was one full and one empty. And he convinced them of sin. And they were pricked in their hearts. Now it's interesting. He could have just as easily have said of sin because they believed on me. Because it was equally proved to believers that sin was condemned. Because you see, brothers and sisters, all the believers are sinners, aren't we? We're all, we're all sinners. But we are convinced, aren't we? We are convinced that sin has been dealt with, aren't we? Why are we? We say, well, because Jesus crucified that nature which, which is the cause of sin in all others. Exactly, as our brother David told us on the, 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 the day we had together. Exactly. But brothers and sisters, just think of this. This, let this sink down in your ears. That man was perfectly righteous, morally. What's God telling you? That if that nature is prone to sin and bias to sin in a perfectly righteous man and it profited him nothing, brothers and sisters, what does it profit you and I who are sinners? If it profited that man nothing. Look at the dimension of that. So he convinced the world of sin in every way. Not only of those who didn't believe on him because they found they were wrong, but even people who came to believe on him saw the enormity of giving in to this flesh when a righteous man, perfectly righteous man, said it doesn't profit me, let alone you. Now that, brothers and sisters, is a real conviction, isn't it? We ought to be really convicted of that. Now he says in verse 9 or verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father. Well, of course. I mean, brothers and sisters, could you ever imagine anyone going to the Father who was not perfectly righteous? We say, like, because of his, his, his perfect obedience to God, Philippians says, he became obedient, even obedient to the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, didn't he? 
Or as Hebrews chapter 1 and verse, verses 3 puts it, he says, when he had in himself purged our sins, he set him on his, the, the, the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you've got to think about it. What else could ever go into heaven but perfect righteousness? Nothing would be allowed in there. And the fact that he's there, as Peter was saying, that in, that, in, in Psalm 110, it, Yahweh said to my ruler, sit thou at my right hand. That was telling everybody that that man was perfectly righteous because nothing else could ever have gone into the presence of God, brothers and sisters. It just could not ever got near there. And it speaks in Hebrew. It's about entering in by his own blood. That blood has to be, in that context, the symbol of a perfect life. Because there's no other way that he would have got into that presence of God. So the fact that he's there would convince the world of righteousness. And finally, he said, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. But in what sense was he judged? If you come back to John chapter 12, here's a real judgment, brothers and sisters. Here's the same thing he said before. Here's a real judgment. So in John chapter 12, when there were certain Greeks came up to see him, verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them which came up to worship at the feast. And verse 26 says, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man. Notice the emphasis on that. Now he says in verse 31, The prince of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now the prince of this world, in that context, I believe, is the Jewish elders. It did include, I believe, the Romans as well. Men in high places, the hierarchy, who took him to that stake, both Jew and, 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 and Roman. But here, brothers and sisters, it's speaking about the prince of this world. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 2, for example, confirmation that he is talking about the Jewish elders when he talks about the prince of this world. Now look at the, look at the, 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 the depth of his condemnation. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up in the earth, will draw all unto me. And the power of that judgment, brothers and sisters, was not only to put them out, but to bring people in who they wouldn't spit on. There's the judgment. You see, it would be one thing, wouldn't it, to see at the judgment seat of Christ. Cahiaphas says, he will be there. Jesus said, you will see. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom and you yourselves thrust out. Luke 13 verse 28 that is. You will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom and you shall be thrust out. And he didn't stop there brothers and sisters. He went, and many shall come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south and sit down in that kingdom. And the people that they absolutely despised will be in there and they will be out. Not only that they have been judged wrong themselves, but they have made terrible wrong judgments to find that people in there are people that they wouldn't spit on. But they'll come from all directions to sit down in that kingdom. And Jesus said, the prince of this world is cast out and I'll draw all unto me. Now that's a real judgment, isn't it? Not only to find yourselves out, but the whole reversal of your attitude. Your attitude totally, totally rejected. Because people that you despise are in there and you're out. That is a real judgment. Well, then Jesus starts to talk in John chapter 16 in language which completely bewildered them. And, and if we weren't careful readers, brothers and sisters, 
and with a bit of hindsight, of course, we, we, we're, not, we're nowhere near as, as smart as the, as the apostles. I think sometimes we talk about it as if we were. But you see, we wouldn't have been any better. We'd have been a whole lot worse even if we were there in the situation. We have the benefit of this record. We can look back. We know it all. We can see it. We're smart. We can see it all because we, we live here. We didn't live where they lived. So let, let's not be too critical of them. But they were bewildered about it and we would have been bewildered. This little while. This little while. See? John chapter 16. A little while and you shall, you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. Because I go to my father. That's a puzzle. They said in verse 17, well, what's this? A little while he says this, and you'll see me. A little while you won't see me. What's this little while? Well, the little while, brothers and sisters, was about three days, wasn't it? Killed. They didn't see him. Raised again, and they did. But there was a difference. Now, you'll never understand this if you don't understand the point that there's two words for see, and they're consistently kept separate in this chapter for example the word see in verse 16 a little while you shall not see me is simply means to see as a spectator someone you're looking at but the second time it's used and you shall see me is a word which means to gaze with amazement so the same person that you were just simply watching at this stage of history at this stage of history, you will be absolutely amazed what you see. Now, there's the two different words. Now, that, that distinction is preserved in verse 17, when the disciple says, a little while you shall see me to be a, specta- or to be a spectator, and a little while you, sh- you shall not see me, rather, and then a little while you shall see me, and that is to gaze in amazement. It's, that distinction is maintained in verse 17, and it's maintained in verse 19, where it's repeated again. And in every case, the two Greek words... The distinction is maintained. And we need to understand that. So you see, one is just seeing, just seeing. The other one is to see as you've never seen before. So a little while he said, you shall not see me. I'll disappear from view. And a little while later, you'll see me like you have never seen me. That's what he's really saying. Look at verse 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. That's the second word, to gaze in amazement. Then he said, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now come back to John chapter 1 and see where this word is used. The second word, looking in amazement. Seeing him, brothers and sisters, as they had never seen him. Now here's a couple of instances of it. Jesus talking to Nathaniel here. And he says to Nathaniel in Chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see, there it is, greater things than these. Same word, that second word. Not just an ordinary spectator, but to gaze in amazement. Verse 51. And he saith unto him, Verily, very truly, truly, Nathaniel, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open. That's the second word. To gaze in amazement. And if we were any doubt about it, you know, he, he, he said to, to Martha, did I not say unto you, you would see the glory of God when he raised her brother Lazarus? And that's the same word again. Gaze in amazement. Now she saw Lazarus. She was a spectator. He lived with her. It's a brother. 
But there he is outside that tomb with, with grave clothes on. She was absolutely stunned what she saw. Never saw him like that before, did she? And he wasn't an immortal man. He was just raised from the dead for the purpose. But she'd never seen that before. Now that's what Jesus is saying. And you know, the confirmation of all of this, remember 1 Corinthians 15, scene of James, scene of the apostles, scene of me, scene of about 500 brethren at once, same Greek word. They all looked with absolute amazement at what they saw. Never saw him like that before. And so you find, brethren and sisters, that this is the meaning. A little while, he said, I'll disappear from view. A little while again, you'll see me like you have never seen me. And they didn't understand that until he went on to explain about it. But you know, at verse 16, notice what it says at the end of that verse. Well, let's read the whole verse. Here's one of your contradictions, or seeming contradictions. A little while, and ye shall not see me, that is just as a spectator, and again, a little while, and you shall be amazed to see me, because I go to the Father. Now look at verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you shall see me no more. Now here he's saying, I'm going to go to my Father, and you won't see me anymore. But you're going to see me because I go to my Father. Now say that again. He says, you're going to not see me. I'm going to go to my Father and you won't see me anymore. But you're going to see me again because I go to my Father. Now you imagine them scratching their head and thinking, what on earth is that about? But you see, when he went to the Father, he went to heaven. They can't, they can't see their brothers and sisters. It's just simple, a simple fact. A physical fact of eyesight. You cannot see that. But we see him as we have never seen him before because he did go to the Father. That's what made the difference. And there he was, no longer burdened down with this nature, biased to sin with all its inherent weaknesses, but now imbued with the very divine nature, with God's own nature himself. We've never seen him like that and we would never have seen him had he not gone there. But when he went there, he disappeared out of sight. And what is that telling us? Well, if you want to put it simply, we don't live by sight, we live by faith. And what we can't see with our eyes, our, our natural eye, brothers and sisters, we gaze with amazement at the things we understand about him. And so what seems to be a total contradiction in terms is really wonderful when, when you see it like that. Now he went on to tell him in verse 19, he says, what are you saying? What are you talking about? He says, do you inquire among yourselves? You know, the, the Greek says, is this what you're asking question for? Are you asking yourselves the question? You, you, you're standing here in a group asking, what does this little while mean? What does that little while mean? What's this word seed mean here? What's it mean here? What, what's he talking about? He said, do you think you're going to work it out? Talking among yourselves? No, he said, you won't. He says, look, Truly, truly, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And you know, that is so true, brothers and sisters, isn't it? You know, that is a test of true discipleship. If you want to sort of think, well, where do I stand in the truth? Just compare your attitude to the world's attitude, your spirit to their spirit. If you find that your attitude is the same, if you find you enjoy and rejoice with the same things that the world rejoices with, there's something seriously wrong in our life. We, we, there's something seriously wrong 
Jesus is just not just saying it'll be your sorrow and their joy as if that, that's a phenomenon, you know. It's not. It, it's just the, the most natural thing in the world. If you're in the truth, you're in the truth and you're not in the world and vice versa. And that, that is the acid test of discipleship, isn't it? We're of God, they're not of God. We hear God's voice, they don't, says John in his epistle. It's, it's just so simple. So Jesus said, you're going to be sorrowful and the world will rejoice. But he said this, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Ah, oh, now brothers and sisters, you missed that expression and you missed the rest of this chapter. He didn't say your sorrow will then be done away with and you will have joy. He never said that. He said your sorrow will be turned into joy. That sorrow will become joy. It's not two unrelated things. Now you think deeply about this. So this is a wonderful thing. You know, when I read this, I was absolutely thrilled a bit to catch the spirit of this. Your sorrow is actually turned into joy. It's not that get away with the sorrow and you'll have something different. No, that's related to that. And how do we know that? A woman, when she is in travail. Now, there's a lot of sisters in this hall that have been mothers and they look back on that experience and they relate that experience to the birth of that child. And if a sister, if I'm not right, sisters can tell me afterwards, but I don't think they'd be natural if they didn't think like this, that all that pain and travail, all that discomfort over those months of time, building up to the crescendo and the sharp pains and the end, the agony of it all, and then the cry of that child, it's not a question of that sorrow, being unrelated to that joy. But the joy of that birth is made greater, brothers and sisters, by the very sorrow that preceded it. And as the mother grows up with that child and feeds that child, nestles it in her arms, she sees that as a result of a lot of trouble and a lot of anger, but she doesn't regret that. She doesn't curse her God because of that. And the love of that mother for that child will grow stronger and stronger because of the very sorrow which brought that child into the world. And if she's any mother at all in Israel, if she's got any spirit in her, when that child grows to maturity and wants to kick over the traces and be disrespectful to mum, she will remind that child the agony and the sorrow that she went through to have that kitty and tell that child, especially if it's a girl, one day you will know that that sorrow has been turned into joy. It's related. And that, brothers and sisters, is a tremendous thing. It's just simply saying, if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. That's all it's saying. If we don't suffer, we won't reign. So it's not a question of being without suffering and getting into the kingdom of God as two separate things. They're related. Paul said, didn't he, through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom of God. It's related. And what's going to happen in the kingdom when we come to a new birth of the Spirit? When spirit floods our bones and our body as flesh and as blood does now and we revitalise brothers and sisters with endless life and amazing powers of perception and strength and health and we will look back and it will be all the more powerful because of where it came from. Our sorrow will be turned into joy because we know that without that sorrow we would never be where we are today. Now that's what Jesus is saying. It's linked 
to childbirth. That's what it is, linked to the figure of childbirth. And look what he says. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Now, now Jesus was not disregarding women. He didn't treat male and female as being second or first and second class citizens. It wasn't a question of just choosing the male above the female. But the, it's a wonderful illusion. It's just such a magnificent illusion, isn't it? You see, brothers and sisters, where did the sorrow of childbirth originate? Where did the sorrow and anguish come from? In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Eve was told that. And it's sin that did that. And Eve would have felt the power of that, brothers and sisters. I believe they had a conscience. They certainly did. They hid themselves. They were not people who were not without feeling. And here Eve is now burdened down with it. When she has children, it's not going to be as if it's going to be a sublime experience of all pure, unalloyed joy. It's not going to be like that at all, Eve. In sorrow you will be conceived, children. And she's burdened down with that. And then God said to her, But one day, Eve, one day there will come forth the seed of the woman by which Genesis 3.15 is telling us two things, that Jesus would come in our nature, no question of that, but that's not the main issue. The question was he would be the son of the father. He would not be the child of men. He would come from God and he would represent God and God is masculine. So that Eve would know, brothers and sisters, that every Jewish woman that conceived children, a woman of faith, what were they looking for? What were they looking for? All of them were looking for the birth of that Messiah and every one of them, every one of them, that is, with faith, I don't say every single one, but those faithful women who could perceive the promises was thinking possibly this is it and all their pain and all their sorrow would go when a man child would be born into the world. And you know, it's so wonderful, isn't it? Now, I want you to turn to Micah chapter 4. If we just read this in our daily reading, just to illustrate the point. Now, I hope this will help, brothers and sisters, to illustrate my point. Sorrow of childbirth producing the joy of the man-child. It's related. Now, Micah chapter 4, beginning, say, from about verse 6, is the prophet dealing with the history of Jacob now listen carefully, brothers and sisters, because this is absolutely fantastic. He's, dealing, he's making a prophecy of the history of Jacob returning back from Paden Aram from his uncle Laban. And Jacob comes back and God smites him on the thigh and he's, he's halting upon his thigh. And he comes to a place when there was a little way to come to Ephrath. Now listen to the land. I don't want to turn this record up because I want, the time won't allow. But he's coming to this place. There was a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel is in hard labour. And she dies in hard labour when there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, says the record. And when she died, 
Jacob commemorated her death with a pillar. And Israel, Israel grew great and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. Edar meaning the flock. So you've got a picture of this man coming back from captivity, halting upon his thigh and God increasing his greatness. He's just outside of Bethlehem. His wife is in agony with this boy coming on into the world. And just when they just didn't quite make Bethlehem, she dies in childbirth in agony. They called him, she called him the son of my sorrow, but he called him the son of my right hand. The only boy named by his father, by the way, of the twelve tribes. Just outside of Bethlehem. And then Jacob commemorates her death and when that's done, Israel grows great and spreads his tent beyond the Tower of Edom. Now look at verse 6. In that day saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Jacob coming back, halting upon his thigh. I'll make her that halted a remnant, her that was cast off a strong nation, and Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And Jacob's coming back, increasing in greatness. And thou, O tower of the flock, margin Eda, reference Genesis 35. Thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. When would the kingdom come to the daughter of Jerusalem? After the death of that nation in agony, giving birth to the Son of, son of God's right hand. Verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counsellor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labour to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now thou shalt go forth out of the city. You'll dwell in the field. You'll go to Babylon. She'll die. Chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, straight from Genesis 35, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Out of thee. Not a little way to come to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, but in that little village. And so here's the wonderful prophecy. A prophecy, brothers and sisters, of a man's life and a woman's life coming back from captivity and just failing to reach Bethlehem. And Rachel represented, of course, as natural Israel commemorated by Jacob. And when she is gone, when she dies in childbirth, Israel spreads his tent on the Tower of Eda. And of course, you know what happened? The time came for the boy to be born and Israel gave birth to the Son of God in the death throes of agony. He was born, brothers and sisters, and it was but a few years, AD 70, and they were gone into captivity. The Son of God's right hand came into the world and Israel gave birth to him in a welter of pain and anguish and agony. But the day will come when he that was actually born in Bethlehem, not just a little way, that came out of that citadel village will be ruler in Israel. Now there's a case that when that nation comes back and they see all of that, they will see the truthfulness of the words. A woman when she is in travail hath great sorrow, but that sorrow will be turned into joy when she sees that a man child is born into the world. Now the prophet Isaiah picked that up, did he not? And he made that wonderful statement, unto us a child is born, 
and unto us a son is given. He's our child, brothers and sisters, because he was born of one of our race. One of us. Mary was one of us. He's our child. He is not our son. Unto us a child is born. But unto us a son is not born, is given. And God gave his only begotten son, didn't he? So there's a difference in that statement. And when the angels announced that, in the fields of Bethlehem, they said this will be a great joy unto all people. But look at the discomfort of Mary in that stable. Think about all your modern conveniences, sisters, today. At your maternity hospitals with every convenience, all the alternate ways that we can now circumvent even natural birth. We can do it other ways, if necessary. We can stave off this infection. We can, we can stop this pain. We can have all sorts of, of painkillers. We can have the gas. We can do it with That woman didn't have any of that. And she is in a stable. Imagine the unsanitary conditions of that. A little baby, straight from her womb. Imagine this. With all the sensitivity of that fair skin, born into the world for the first time, laying in a straw. But I tell you what, look at her sorrow. A sword would pierce her soul, brothers and sisters, wouldn't it? She'd be cut in halves by the circumstances of, the, of her boy growing up and seeing her just as another woman because he, now his relationship with the father supersedes all other relationships. So she's just one, another woman. A wonderful woman indeed. One he respected, but woman. And she had to go through the agony of that, the pain of that. Sees him on the cross, weeps at the foot of his cross. A sword was cut her in half that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Why? Because in Mary, brothers and sisters, we have the tremendous truth that spirits greater than blood, that relationships with God are greater than relationships with flesh, and she's the touchstone of it all. And how many people have made shipwreck and become offended over those issues when she didn't? In the end, she saw it through. And her sorrow was turned into joy. And she'd look back on those experiences and she wouldn't want to unrelate them. And she would feel that her sorrow, her pain, discomfort, embarrassment in that stable was nothing alongside his sorrow, his pain, his embarrassment in front of that crowd. And she would see that that was the way that he made his way to the Father's right hand. And she would see that he came into the world through her suffering and she would not see that as unrelated. She would see that her sorrow was turned into joy. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's an enormous thing. And you know, it's when Jesus told his disciples that they were to go to all the world and extend this principle. You know, Paul saw this. You know, it says in Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It doesn't say he shall look back upon the travail of his soul and he will be sorry it ever happened. It doesn't say that. It says he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied with it. He will look at his children. I am the children which God hath given me. Isaiah 8, quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. I am the family which God hath given me. And Jesus will survey the vast crowd before him. He is their spiritual father representing the everlasting father on high. And there's his family of children and he'll look at them and he'll think all that pain, 
Look at that. You would think of the dreadful thing, but he'll be satisfied. His sorrow will be turned into joy because he'd know that if it hadn't happened, they wouldn't be there. See the point he's making. Now, Paul saw that in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. A marvellous figure here, brothers and sisters. Absolutely marvellous figure. Look at what he said to the Galatians. Chapter 4 of Galatians at verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, what a way to see that figure. See what he's saying? You know, we, we often read these words, but you've got you've to just... It's not difficult, brothers and sisters. There's nothing difficult about the Bible when it's taken simply. Look, what is he saying here? Here's the apostle, and he's going through agony, like a woman goes through agony in childbirth, right? Now, when a woman's going through that pain and all the discomfort, as the child grows within her, she is conscious of the fact that the child is there. So every, every discomfort, every twinge of pain, all the tiredness, the morning sickness is all mellowed by the fact that she knows that's there. She can, it's so obvious, she can feel that developing. Now here's the apostle, he's dragged out, he's stoned at Lystra, a night and a day and the deep, five times I received of the Jews stripes, 40 bar, less one, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, care of all the ecclesias, and he's all this pain and agony do you know what he's saying? It's not that he's feeling Christ being developed in himself. He's watching Christ developing in them. And he's suffering the pain and they're having the child. Of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. Now that is a marvellous figure. So here was the apostle prepared to go through all that agony. Not that he would have a spiritual family because he knows he's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. And he's trying to get Christ developed in them and he's going through the pain for that to be accomplished. Now what a wonderful attitude that is. What if we had that attitude? What if we thought, brothers and sisters, that would it be no greater thing for us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ manifest in our brothers and sisters for which we are prepared to suffer for that to be done for no personal benefit except to see Christ in others. And wouldn't Paul's sorrow be turned into joy when he told the Colossians my son let's turn it up Colossians chapter 1 it's good to read this look what he said look what he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is lacking says the Greek of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the ecclesia. Now, what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Nothing. Except this. The Jews had seen it as, as, a, as you might say, as the start of this great movement of which we're part of. It was necessary that people understand the suffering Messiah as we've never understood it. Now, the Jews actually saw that. The Gentiles never saw it. But Paul said, that's all that was lacking. You haven't seen it. But here I am, he said. And I fill up in this body what's lacking with you in my flesh for his body's sake. Told the Galatians, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been crucified among you. And so here is a man going through, as it were, the pangs of childbirth for Christ to be formed in them. What an attitude of mind that is. And that's extending that figure. And when he said that 
that he said, said to, the, to, the, to the Thessalonians, didn't he? Uh, he said, you will be my crown of joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be my crown of joy. And Paul will see the seed of Christ. Christ will be satisfied and so will the apostle. And all his travail has gone to have Christ formed in other people. Now that sorrow turned into joy. So we mustn't despise tribulation, brothers and sisters, and, and anguish and trial and pain and all sorts of things we suffer. We don't despise that. I know it's hard and, and at times we do and, and you get sometimes you get a bit upset and bitter and you, you think, why, why, why? And yet you think to yourself, well, we shouldn't think that because we should ask ourselves, well, what sin am I suffering? Because none of us, we're none worthy of God's grace. But we should also see it as being related to glory. It'll be turned. It won't be sorrow one minute and joy the other. It'll be the result of sorrow will be turned into joy. Now finally, in this section we're dealing with this evening in John chapter 16, Jesus makes this comment as we come near to verse 24. He said in verse 22, But, but now, but you, now, you therefore, therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. Now brothers and sisters, he said in verse 19, You would see me again. But now that's not like that, is it? You know, a careful Bible reader would never miss that. Jesus puts it the other way around. He said, "Ye therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. Oh! And that's the same word, the second word, not the first one. He will look at amazement at us. Oh, when I say amazement, he won't be amazed at anything, really. But the word has the idea of, of looking as you've never seen it before. And he said, you'll see me like you've never seen me before, and I'm going to see you like I've never seen you before. You think of that. So he has a joy too, hasn't he? And he will see us immortal. And we will see him immortal because we shall see him as he is. Same word. We will see him as he is for we shall be like him. Which means that he will see us like him. So we'll be rejoicing because we can see him as he is and we'll recognise in his character we have some faint resemblance to it. That's how we see it. And he'll look back and see the same resemblance. It'll be an amazing experience. Jesus said, I'll see you again. Second word. Isn't that wonderful? And then he says in verse 23, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now that's rather ambiguous. It, it really means, as the RSV puts it, there's a footnote on Rotherham's translation on it, you will ask me no more questions. You won't ask me any more questions like you've been asking now. I mean, the disciples won't stand there in the kingdom of God and the Lord and say to him, a little while we'll see you, a little while we won't see you. What do you mean? Oh, that won't be either. We won't need to ask that anymore. He said, you won't ask those sort of questions. All your questions will be answered. You'll have none of this doubt, none of this confusion. He said, that won't, it won't worry you. You won't ask me any more questions. You'll be guided into all truth. And verse 24, hitherto he said, you have asked nothing in my name. And they haven't. As I said, brothers and sisters, the gospel is the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the kingdom of God was preached because it's all in the Old Testament. It's all there prophesied and God's, God's word is good as fulfilled. What he says will be done. So the kingdom is a reality. It's a reality now because it's so real, because it's there. It was a reality in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So they preached it as a reality. 
But the things concerning the name were not a reality because there was agony and sorrow and pain and, and all things to go through before that happened. He said, you haven't asked in my name, but you will. And when you ask, he said, you'll receive that your joy may be full. Why? Because you see, brothers and sisters, when we, when we bow before our Heavenly Father at the throne of grace, seeking help in time of need, what do we do? We don't pray to Jesus as the churches do. We pray to God, direct. But we are aware that we have no right to his access. We've got no right whatever in heaven. We are unrelated to that in our own selves. We only have access through his son. And we think again, how do we get that access? Through his suffering. If he hadn't have suffered, he wouldn't be there. If he wasn't there, we could never reach the Father. Therefore our joy will be full. Because our sorrow will be turned into joy, won't it? So it's a wonderful section, brothers and sisters, and it's just a pity that we didn't have a chance to do the rest of that chapter. But, but it is a marvellous section and we, we pray that in our Heavenly Father's good pleasure that it won't be very long now before all our sorrow will be turned into joy.